0: Mike, alcoholic. (laughs) Dry date, September 7th, 1985, and that just surprised the Dickens out of all the people that had been watching me come and go for the six years prior to that. Uh, Matter of fact, today I sponsor the son of one of those, the guy who gave me what I hope is my last desire chip, you know. And Bob Sr. told me if he had to give me another one, he would give it to me in suppository form, <laughs> since, since the current form of application wasn't working. Uh, I, uh, I, this is a tremendous uh, privilege, honor for me here. I've been raised in Alcoholics Anonymous and mentored in Alcoholics Anonymous uh to love and appreciate my brothers and sisters in, in the Al-Anon family groups. And uh, I want to thank you for all that you've added to my life. Uh, many of you have helped me many times in many dark places, and uh, I want to thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. And uh, I hope to express a little bit of that gratitude this afternoon. I... uh Probably, let's get sober quick. Uh, I grew up in a college town, Iowa City, Iowa, Big Ten University town. Uh, when I grew up there, there were about 50,000 permanent residents, about 25,000 at the University of Iowa. It's kind of a little beaver cleaver kind of community. Uh, I was told to stop saying beaver by a gal in New York. She says, Mike, nobody knows who beaver is anymore. Uh, <laughs> Say, say the Huxtables. So, I've, I've, I've now officially out of date, but, uh, no, it was the kind of place where, uh, you know, you, you didn't lock your house up until, unless you were going out of town on vacation. You could leave your car, keys in the car, at least until, you know, I started driving. And, uh, it was, uh, it was very, it, everything, people watched out for each other's kids and that sort of thing. And, uh, <laughs> I really identify with Aaron. What he say? I was before I found alcohol. I was the good kid. Now I've always been a power seeker. I knew I needed some edge. I needed some power. And what I used to do for getting power was I was the good kid. I uh, I worked in the principal's office. I was part of all the or- appropriate organizations. I, I got excellent grades. And uh, more to the point, if I came over to your house for dinner, as soon as we were through eating, I would jump up and begin clearing the plates from the table and carry them into the kitchen and start rinsing them in the sink until your mom said, why can't you be like that nice Lorenz boy? <laughs> you know, yes, that's what I was looking for. And uh, I found my first real drink of alcohol that wasn't a sip off dad's beer or something like that, when I was about 11 years old, I got, I got enough vodka that the miracle that's described on page 27 of the big book occurred for me. And on page 27, uh, Carl Young's talking to an appropriately named drunk by the name of Roland Hazard. Uh, <laughs> And he's describing a spiritual awakening or a spiritual experience to him because he's telling me, look, I've tried everything. You've been here six months. My, all the regular psychiatric stuff isn't going to work with you. And then he goes on and he says, every now and then, once, every once in a while, I did these emotional upheavals occur. The ideas and emotions that were the guiding forces in the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side and a new set of conceptions takes hold. And that's looking back. I found out exactly what happened to 11-year-old Mike. Uh, I felt the effect of the alcohol, and the alcohol was I didn't need to be Mister Little Mister Goody Two Shoes anymore. Screw that stuff. And my my folks were just amazed within a very short time what uh, what had happened is like demonic possession in their household. What had happened? I'm the oldest of four kids. Uh, I won't tell you I came from a normal family, but I came from a functional family. Uh, and, you know, all of a sudden, their, their little kid that had been the apple of their eye is turning the whole household upside down, and I continued to tornado like that for a long time. A big part of my amends in that family were simply the fact that uh, when the guy that helped me approach those amends, he said, Mike, tell me what it was like to have you for a brother. Tell me what it was like to have you for a son. And what I did is I sucked the oxygen out of the room. There wasn't room for them. I lived like I was an only child. And uh, the drinking piece... uh, Probably this would tell you how I drank as well as anything else. I'm uh, I'm a teenager. I've, I've recently got a driver's license, and I've got I'm out drinking with a buddy. We've got some beer in the car, and we're riding around out in the county, uh, you know, planning what we're going to say to girls and drinking beer and and riding light. And all of a sudden, uh, the squad car lights are on behind me. Now, keep in mind this is the day before they had two-man squad cars and all the stuff they got today. This was Barney Fife that was pulling me over. (laughs) So I pulled over and I turned to my buddy and I said, watch this. So I got out of the car and, you know, this guy knows who I am. I'm one of the local kids. I get out of the car, wave at him, go back. So when I get get close to him, I slam him up against the squad car and take his gun away from me. Uh, and then I turn around and hand it back to him. Uh, I've had a couple cops in audiences like this that say they would have shot me on the spot, but uh, fortunately uh, that wasn't the mode there. And my my calculation worked. The guy turned me loose. See, I figured that he was going to be way too embarrassed that the kid took his gun away to arrest me and take me back to the sheriff's station and have to put up with the ribbing from all of his buddies that a kid took his gun away. Uh, no way that's going to happen. So he turned me loose. And the most important part of that was my friend was watching every bit of it, and he just made a beeline back to school and told everybody in school I had my reputation you know, the next day in school, I went there. Yeah. I'm the guy. And that's the way that, so, uh, well, maybe one more story here. Uh, I, this is a high risk story to tell with this audience, but, that, <laughs> I, you know, like I said, I acted like I was an, uh, an only child, but, you know, the fact, the fact was that I, you know, I had this sense of entitlement, and one of the things I believed I was entitled to was uh, a new Corvette, uh, and my dad didn't see it the same way. As a matter of fact, my dad bought my mother a tan Buick Electra hardtop. I can, is there anything lamer than a tan Buick for God's sakes? I mean, it's lame. And, uh, and just the injustice of this, uh, you know, overwhelmed me. And, uh, my mom was always my ally in my schemes and, uh, so she, she quickly lends me this car to ostensibly go on a date with. So it's Saturday night and I take off with mom's new car. And, of course, I end up out at the lake, and I'm drinking with my friends. And, and you know, as as we drink, you know, the sense of injustice just builds and grows. And so sometime late that night, I turned to my friend, and his dad happened to have a machine shop. And so Jerry and I went down to his dad's machine shop, and I fired up in the torch and cut the top off that car, and I had the convertible that I was entitled to. Now imagine my parents the next morning. They've they've got my siblings gathered together and they're going to take them to church. And they come out into the garage. And there's kind of the smoking hulk of mom's car there with big brothers draped naked across the front seat. they later found the top of that car and made a sort of repair it they never did find my clothes so uh, that's uh, so i i guess i are we down with the fact that i didn't drink well <laughs> and it didn't you know it just variations of episodes through the years and i had this arc where it, it seemed to you know life seemed to be going well i seemed to be a success i uh, I was talking to Aaron last night. I spent some time in his town down there, uh, first first doing very well, and then finally at the Coliseum Motel down there on, on Independence, which was not a nice place. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, I uh, doesn't usually make it into the story, but you want to talk about the loneliness and isolation. I'm staying at this motel down there, and I'm paying hookers to come in and just talk to me. Because I can't relate. I've got to pay somebody to come and talk to me. Nothing else. I'm that, I'm that cut off and that, that isolated. Eventually, the miracle happens, and, and uh, uh, I get sober. And like so many, I always thought that sober was the answer. And it seems to be now with my experience that if sober's your answer, you may not be an alcoholic. Sober's kind of a side effect for alcoholics. See, it turns out the man that saved my life, well let me back up a little bit. I came in, I, the last, I started out at fancy treatment centers when I had a big job, good money, uh, lots of benefits. Uh, and then just kind of trended down over that six-year period till finally my last stop's at, at, at a veterans center. Uh, and I'm shelled out at this point. Uh, and I've been to AA, and I've been to all these places. And uh doesn't seem like it's working. Uh, people I drank with, they're sober five, six, seven years, yeah. some of them. Not working for me. And that last place, the guy that had the impact on me was an orderly. He came in. uh, I was too sick, too damaged physically to get in their treatment program right away, so they put me in the ICU unit of the hospital. And this little orderly came in, and he didn't come in with a speech or anything else. He just came in and he said... uh, it looks like from your chart you may not make it here. I need to know where you want your personal effects sent. And, uh, that's a message with depth and weight. No, he wasn't begging me not to drink. He wasn't trying to entice me into his treatment program. He, uh, the miracle was he told me the truth and I recognized it. I, uh, I've institutionalized well by this point, see, because if, after you, if you're smart, and most of us are, you go to a, the, a treatment center or two, and, and pretty soon you know exactly what to say. Uh, you You know what behavior and attitudes to exhibit to show them that you're getting better. And so I know how to go inside a treatment center now and become teacher's pet and get extra privileges and do all this kind of stuff. And I think I'm smart, except it's killing me. Where I end up with with that orderly and then with two pivotal decisions for me. What's going to be different about this time? What's going to be different? Well, what's got to, what it boiled down to is I'd never really been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been just somebody keeping a chair warm in a meeting. So I made a decision that if I, Survived and got out of there, I was going to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous in the fullest sense of that word. And then I'd, I'd always re- resisted what I called the spiritual side of this stuff. Uh, and uh, decided that I was willing to uh, try and form some kind of a relationship with a power greater than myself. So there I am the old war hero kneeling by the bunk in the VA place, and the only prayer I can come up with is now I lay me down to sleep. That's the best I can do. But you know, it's wonderful because as our book says, God doesn't make hard terms. Got out of that treatment center and uh, I... uh, Eventually made my way back to Indianapolis and I became my, began my career as a junior guru in AA. Uh, and what this looks like is I'm going to 11 meetings a week because that's what you could go, kind of the maximum in India you could go to at that time. And I'm getting a hold of every service position I can and I don't miss a conference and I don't miss a, whatever's going on, I'm, I'm right there in the thick of it. And I believe that I'm doing Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I, uh, I got a new, brand new career. I was completely unwelcome in the young, old career. It was kind of like a godfather talk they had. It was a very close-knit, closed industry. And uh, they, they told me they wished me well, but never to try and seek employment in that line of work again and so I found an entirely different line of work and began to succeed in that and met and married a wonderful woman in Alcoholics Anonymous and she, she had a, uh, a year and a half old son so I gotta, I've, gotta, I've got the postcard picture family and I'm on my way. And Oh, the other thing, I did whatever junior gurus got to do, I started my own meeting uh, because, you know, nobody else's meeting quite did it correctly, so you got to have your own signature meeting. I've since got to sponsor myself, you know.
1: <laughs>
0: this guy started three, you know. At least they neuter cats, you know. But anyway... <laughs> Say yeah, that's that's beautiful. See if you stay sober, sooner or later, somebody like you is going to walk across the room and ask you to sponsor them, and you're going to you're going to get to see yourself as you never saw yourself before. I uh, life's wonderful, and and my fifth anniversary in Alcoholics Anonymous is approaching, and I the obsession to drink, uh, thoughts of drinking have been completely removed but my secret is that I'm trying to find a way to kill myself with a sincerity that I never had when I was drinking. I was more hopeless five years from a drink with all this exterior success than I'd ever been when I was drinking. And what that was for me was that, you know, when I was drinking, and, and maybe some of the people have said this to you or you have said it to somebody else, you know, uh, all my life it seemed like people would say, Mike, if you just didn't drink, you know, you'd be valedictorian at this high school. If you didn't drink, you know, we'd promote you into senior management at this co- company. Mike, if, you know, you didn't drink, I'd, I'd keep this engagement ring. Mike, if you didn't drink, fill in the blank. And now I haven't had a drink for five years, and I'm I'm hollow on the outside, inside. That's, that the wife that I that I love uh, is saying things to me like, "Mike, being married to you is the loneliest thing I've ever done," Mike. Do you suppose if I let you sponsor me, I could have one of those intimate chats I hear you having with the guys you sponsor? I know more about what you think, feel, and believe by listening to your side of a telephone conversation than by anything you say to me. Andrew, my stepson, always been a very wise old soul, always been one of my... Good teachers. Four years old, this kid, I'm picking him up from daycare, and and he turns to me and he says, You know, Mike, I think things would work better for you if you said the second thing that comes to your mind.
1: <laughs>
0: Who knew? And not, not long after that, you know, because I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to be a dad, and, and Lori told me, she says, you know, if you pay attention to him, he'll teach you. And I'll be darned, you know. Not long after that, he, he says, Mike, you need to understand I've got plenty of friends. I need you to be my dad. So I got my job description. But it didn't look like that then. I, 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 the, the image I can't get out of my mind four, He's four years old. It's Sunday afternoon. I'm backing out in the back out of the driveway of our house, and Andrew comes up to the side of the car and he says, "Mike, Mike, he says, "Can't you stay? I'd, I'd really like to play with you this afternoon." And I looked that kidney eye and said, "Oh Andrew, I would really love to." but I've got some really important work to do at the office and I'll be home as soon as I can. And I backed out of the drive, drove down to my office, turned on my computer and started playing solitaire. See, I'm terrified of that kid. I can't be with that kid. I love him, but I don't know how to... This is sober. This is not drinking behavior. And so, obviously, sobriety fixes a lot of things for a lot of people. apparently doesn't for me. And what I didn't know uh, was that five years away from a drink, sitting in a million meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was dying from untreated alcoholism. Because what I did in Alcoholics Anonymous was very much like what I did years ago at the University of Iowa. Went over to the field house, signed up for all my classes, Bought my books at the student bookstore, joined a fraternity, put the books in the closet, started partying. And if you ran into me on campus and asked me what I was doing, I'd tell you, well, I'm a pre-law student here at the University of Iowa, sir. And that was technically true, except I was rarely going to class. And what I did in Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't miss a dance, didn't miss a function, didn't miss an intergroup meeting, didn't miss any of the meetings. I just missed the program. Now that didn't keep me from slogan slinging. you know. Oh, acceptance is the answer, you know. Uh turn that over, uh, you know, whatever. But if you'd asked me how to do any of those things, I wouldn't have known what to tell you. So further from a drink than I ever imagined I was going to ever be able to get, the man I disliked most in Alcoholics Anonymous uh turned out to say it turned up to save my life. And, you know, I've come to find out since that God's got a sense of humor, and if what you've got is a bad attitude and resentment, that God's completely capable of working with that. And uh, so I was delivered into, into the hands of now the old-timer in my current home group uh, and so forth, and uh, who's a, today a dear friend, and we do some of this stuff together. Uh, but it wasn't that way then. I went to my first meeting in my current home group because... I'd heard this guy speak from the podium and I knew what he was saying and it was a lie. He was talking about selling his house, cashing his retirement plan and a bunch of other things to go make amends and get square with the world. And I knew people didn't really do that. So even though his home group was like 30 miles the other side of town, I went over there and my sole purpose for going there, I didn't want a thing that guy had and I didn't want anything to do with that meeting. I wanted to go over there and get the goods on him and expose him as a liar or a fraud and run him out of Alcoholics Anonymous if I could. See what happens, you know. I, uh, God had other plans and uh, eventually Gary, Gave me my first experience with the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous at depth, and uh, I uh, later one of one of the men he'd sponsored became a, a mentor for me uh, and uh, helped me a great deal. Uh, Don P from Aurora, Colorado, uh, and Don's gone now, but uh, Don was one of the ones that uh, taught me so much about. Uh, loving and paying attention to Al Anon and, and, and guiding me in that direction and uh what I was overlooking and missing there. Uh, so uh with the time left I want to talk about two things here. Uh I uh I want to talk about a a prayer and then I want to talk about an amend. And the prayer, you know, unfortunately, that marriage that I was telling you about uh, ended. But uh, with the help, actually, of, uh, although we were both alcoholics, uh, a member of Gary's wife, a longtime member of Al-Anon, helped me a great deal. I mean, she pulled me aside. And, uh, when we found out that the, the divorce I didn't want to have happen was going to happen, she pulled me aside and, and helped me and she said, look, you got, got me right and said, up against the wall. And she said, look, you've got to aggressively practice the tenth, tenth tradition now. You're going to have no opinions on outside issues and everything she's, almost everything she's going to do from now on is an outside issue. You're not going to have an opinion on whether she keeps the house, sells the house, what she does with the retirement plan, any of that stuff, that's none of your business. And she helped me that, uh, walk through a lot of that stuff. And it was invaluable. And we were able to have a respectful divorce. And, and it wasn't long after that that we uh, uh, I was allowed to. I, I became a three-day-a-week dad now. And so I had Andrew three days a week. and. Uh, one night, it's a—I it was a Friday or Saturday, I don't really remember which—and uh, I picked Andrew up, and he was going to spend a few days with me. And he says, "Mike, I'm tired of those kids' places. Uh, I want to go to a real restaurant tonight. I don't want to—no McDonald's, no Applebee's, none of that stuff." She, he says, "I want to go to a real restaurant with a tablecloth." And so, I take Andrew to a. I know how to, to listen by now. I take him to a real restaurant and we're having dinner. And uh, it's going well because he's, he's fun to be with. And all of a sudden, I look up and I look around the restaurant, and oh my God, it's full of couples in love. Everybody here is with a sweetheart or with somebody, and I'm with a six-year-old for God's sakes. And the self-pity tsunami just washes over me. I, i the, the injustice of all this is just terrible. And, uh, so now I've got better behavior than I used to have. I, uh, I treat him correctly and we finish our dinner and I take him home. Uh, we, you know, watch a video and do, give him his bath and put him in bed and tell him a story and as soon as he's out, uh, I'm running into the, the dining room and whipping out my pencil and paper and I'm writing inventory and I'm upset. I'm really honked off at, uh, at what God's done to me. And uh, I'll let you hear exactly how that rolled. Now, I don't hold this out as an example of really the great way to do this, but uh, I'm here as a result of a lot of imperfect work uh persistently followed by more work. Uh in this particular piece uh, was uh obviously I'm I'm resenting God. So there it is. God's in column one. Uh, of course I wrote a prayer, God please help me, go figure. Uh I resent God. I why do I resent God? Well I am resenting God because I don't have the relationship that I want to have with a woman. I think God's gonna give me the choice to either have a sick relationship or no relationship. I'm lonely. People I sponsor with less recovery are ahead of me in having better relationships than I am. I'm afraid that God will keep me in this pain because I'll be more useful to others than if I have the relationship I fantasize about. How's that for self-pity? I feel like God has given me a gift of communicating with the others, and the price of the gift is my happiness. I'm mad because I know that only God can help me, and I don't believe he will. Turns out, the only thing I need to do to die, if not a physical death, a spiritual death, is just decide that whatever I'm involved in, God isn't interested in or wouldn't help me with it. That's all I need to do. That cuts off my oxygen line right there. All right, well, what's this effect? Well, it affects my self-esteem. I feel like a phony because I might sell out my principles for a comfortable relationship. For example, I might do something like hitting on a newcomer. As a result, I feel like a phony. Don says, Mike, that's because you're a phony. <laughs> who, who knew? I love that man. I can to do, Don! I feel so guilty. You are. (laughs) I feel so ashamed. You should be. Uh, Distorting my sex relations. I'm having an increasingly emotionally unsatisfying sex-only relationship. I decided that I was going to outsource my sex life. And what this looked like was that I connected with a, a like-minded gal and this this was tw- more than 20 years ago so it was no, no dates, no flowers, no cards, no dinners, no movies. We would just get together and play racquetball and the code word because this was before cell phones or texting, we would call each other secretaries and so forth and get on the calendar for racquetball and <laughs> This seemed like the answer to me. Uh, that's that's what I'm saying. Uh, just uh, and the good news, the good news I found out later was that it wasn't working. Don told me he says, Mike, what if you were the guy that that worked for? What if you could live that kind of an empty life and use somebody, and 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 be okay with that? He says, I know you feel awful about this, but that's wonderful news. Affects my personal relations. Keep me jealous of others, comparing and coveting what they've got. I'm unwilling to share my pain. I feel uh, flawed uh, apart from indifferent. My unbalanced drive in this area makes me vulnerable to getting drunk. Compromising my principles will get me drunk and I know I don't have the strength not to do this. Column 4. My mistake. Well, I'm not li- willing to give this to God because I don't think He's interested or willing to help me. Death sentence. I'm willing to sell out all my principles in order to get relief. I want Ms. Right now, not Miss Right. I'm impatient. Uh, I'm not willing to take an honest look at what this fantasy relation... I'm pretending that this, if I can just get this piece of my life, everything will be fine. And that's a lie. I want somebody else to fill me up and feel me, feel safe and secure, and only God can do that. So I called Gary right away. This this happens in the middle of hours. I don't have to take weeks or months or anything to you know, we're having dinner, I'm coming home, I'm right in the inventory, I'm on the phone right now with Gary across town. Then I called Don in Denver and you know, and so on and so forth. And Don had a silly answer. He listened to this and made a few comments that I shared with you, and then said to me, Mike, uh I'd like you to start saying this prayer. And I said, okay. He says, "Uh, God, please teach me about love. And I said, well, thanks, Don. And I hung up and (laughs) I uh, called somebody else. But part of my deal with Don was that if I followed his direction and I didn't like the results, I got to call up and complain. So I called up a few weeks later and I says, Don, you need to know I don't think much of your damn prayer. He says, Well tell me about that, cowboy. And I says, Well, it's like this. The only the only woman I really had something going for and, and really kind of liked her her company has transferred her out of town and she's gone. And then I went to the doctor the other day and he said my blood pressure was high and he gave me some medicine that's made me impotent, you know. And uh Don just laughed and he says, Well you misunderstood that prayer, didn't you? He says, I, I You thought that prayer was, God, get me a woman, didn't you? And he says, the prayer is, God, please teach me about love. He says, Mike, you're a man that knows a great deal about sex and nothing about love. Please work with me on this. And so, because I loved him, I did. And... It wasn't very long before I did fall wildly in love. And uh it was with my stepson. He and his mom had always been a little closer and had been a little more special, a little and we'd never had a bad relationship, but all of a sudden all the barriers went away. And they've stayed away ever since. And then not too long after that I uh I realized I loved my ex wife. Now I, uh, I didn't want to marry her again. Uh, but the best thing I can describe to you is that God restored her to the place she had in my heart before we got married and all the stuff started. Matter of fact, one of the first things she and I could do together was go to a PTA meeting, and, the, and we were coming home from that PTA meeting, and I said, you know, Lori, I says, I think the only bad feelings I have about the divorce is that. It interrupted our friendship. She looked at me with a grin on her face, just eerie. She says, you still don't get it, do you? And I says, what? She says, it was the marriage that interrupted our friendship.
1: <laughs>
0: oh. See, we were two people that were wired and well suited to be each other's close friends, but we're alcoholics, so marriage seemed like it was more, so we took it one step extra. And, uh, God had just put it back the way it had been before. And so I'm going on and on and on with this prayer. And eventually, I, uh, when I wasn't looking, uh, the woman of my dreams did show up. In fact, I I wouldn't have even dreamed for this woman. She was just out of sight. And uh, I I first met her... uh, Going to meetings with her and her husband and, uh, did workshops with, with her and Richard and, and so forth and we we're all good friends and, uh, back in 2000, uh, he, uh, got a terrible diagnosis of pancreatic cancer on Labor Day and died November 10th that year. It just ate him alive in, in months time. And so the friendships with Linda continued, and then one day, maybe a year or so later, we uh, we'd done a workshop for some people in Indianapolis and walked out. And uh, she was she was a she was an alcoholic, but uh, she and Mary Pearl had formed a bond, and and uh, uh, we'd gotten uh, we'd gotten the traditions between her and and Don and everything else. We really gotten those active in uh, in our life. I mean, uh, anyway. Linda, Linda walks up to me after that we did this workshop in the parking lot, and she says, "Mike, you need to know I love you." And I said, "Well, that's nice." And she says, "No, <laughs> dummy. I mean, I really love you." She says, "Now, how about a real hug, not one of those air kiss, a-hugs, you know?" And uh, I just couldn't believe my good fortune, and we. We went on, we continued on and became engaged and, and so forth and, and, and had lots of fun together. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you this: it was really she was, she was a spiritual teacher to me, like you wouldn't believe. I, uh, we hadn't been dating I think it was less than a month, and I showed up over at her place to pick her up. By the way, she was very clear, "I am not going to be your shack-'em-up honey. We're not living together until we're married." And, uh, okay, uh, and I show up over there and she, she hands me this piece of paper. She says, I've written out the primary purpose from my point of view for our relationship. I'd like to see yours very soon. <laughs> A real no slack approach. I've mean, never had that one happen before. And she used to say that the one she started with was so, so, Detail that had described the color, clarity, and weight of the diamond I was supposed to produce. And mine was so vague that it could have described my relationship with my cat. And, but then we got to practice that second tradition and, and, and build one together. And it was bliss. And my prayer had been answered. And, uh, we, uh, About this time, five years ago, we had our home group retreat, and after that retreat, uh, matter of fact, Tom and Juanita from Santa Fe had been there uh, to facilitate, and uh, I was going out to Santa Fe right shortly after the retreat, and I I had like a 6:30 flight, and I I didn't want her to take me. Uh, I would leave my car; she lived near the airport, and so I would leave my car frequently to her house to save expenses for conferences and so forth. And she said, no, oh, no, no, I won't do that. So she got up and she says, you know, you don't mind I'm in my PJs, do you? And I said, no. And uh, So she drives me to the airport and gives me a kiss and sends me off to Santa Fe. And uh, came home a week later, and uh, she wasn't there to pick me up at the airport. I called and this and that, and we'd had a little squabble over the phone while I was going. I'd been off up at Angel Fire in the mountains, and I'd turned off my phone so I wouldn't it would eat the battery up searching for a signal up there where there wasn't any. and And she thought I I was ignoring her and playing with my friends. And thank God to the tent for the tent step that we straightened that out. So my first thought was, well, gee, I didn't think she was still mad about that, but maybe. So I I eventually I get a cab and I went over to her house and I I've got a key and I go in and uh it's 9:30 in the evening. Uh I find her in the bathroom. She's collapsed that morning while she was getting ready for work. Her coffee's sitting there on by the sink. I uh, she's a she's conscious but she she can't talk. She's find we find out she's had a stroke. And uh we head off to, uh, neurointensive care for five days and looked like she was going to get better and then we got a sudden turn for the worse and, and, we're told that we had to go to hospice. And I'm way shortening the story here, but, uh, I thought that prayer was turned into ashes in my mouth. Oh yeah, teach me about love. Give me, get, give me everything and then do this to me. And thank God for what Don had taught me because Don said, Mike, he says, as near as I can tell, there will always be at least two voices operating in your head. There will be the the Mike that really wants to be the right kind of guy and do the right thing and, and, and show up for other people. And then there's the selfish, self-centered snot. He says, you can't make... Either one of those go away, but he says it's like having a wet drunk in a meeting. You can't shut them up. In fact, the more you try and shut a wet drunk up in a meeting, usually the louder they get. But you don't let them run the meeting either. So because I I knew this duality, I was not robbed of the last hours of my life with Linda. You know, I was able to be present. The voice that said, "Wait a minute." She's way younger than you. She spo- she's, she's supposed to be taking care of you while you die and everything else. This isn't the plan. This is wrong. I can thank you for sharing, you know. And I can I could be the I did I don't have to look back at, on those hours as wasted hours with her as she stepped into her next life. I uh I thought the prayer probably reached its end, and uh, since then it turns out that uh, I had new lessons. My lessons were now were accepting love from others, you know, uh, and that was really terrifying. See, because when I'm the person dispensing the love, I desp- I decide how much there's going to be, how long it's going to last, and what it's going to look like. Right. When I'm allowing you to love me, you're doing, making those decisions. When are you going to hold up your hand and say, well, I think that's about enough love for you, Mike, you know. And, uh, so I get to have this experience. And since then I've, I've, I've had a, I've had another marvelous experience and, uh, that prayer has been going on since 1992, so I don't, I, I haven't quit with it yet. And what, what the current experience over the last several years has been the wonderful, wonderful friendships that I've had with my sisters out here in the world. I've, I've got, I've got a collection of women friends that it's second to none and I I call them my friends without benefits, you know. (laughs) And I, I I've gotten to learn learn so much from you, and experience so much from you, uh, that it's been a real gift. So see when, from a little dinner with a kid, if we'll follow, if I'll put myself, what's it say when we placed ourselves in God's hands? Linda's famous promise was follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently come to live in a new and wonderful world regardless of your current circumstances. And that's my experience. I don't know where this little piece of stuff is going to take me. God seems to just take my garbage and recycle it. And I want to tell you very quickly about an amend because maybe some of you, like myself, have been involved in some behavior with kids that that wasn't good. Uh, During my upscale drinking days, I was uh, in a relationship with uh, a gal by the name of Jan, and uh, uh, she had two small daughters, Summer and Erica. They were two years old and four years old when I showed up. And their dad was, you know, your classic violent alcoholic. He was... He was a biker when he, when he, the last time the kids saw him, they were, had been in a grocery store, were sitting in the car outside the grocery store, and he came up with a length of chain and smashed all the windows out of the car and left them covered with broken glass and rode off and ended up in Arizona. And, uh, I showed up and I'm driving a luxury car and wearing a cashmere coat and I got a bottle of Bordeaux under my arm instead of a six pack. But I'm still alcoholic. I'm 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 tornadoing these lives. And so Jan and I were together for about five years with these kids and everything going on. And and Jan is still my barber today. God go figure. And uh, matter of fact, she tells me any time I go to these conferences to tell you if you need to see a demonstration of God's love, realize that she can have me in a barber chair with a razor near my throat, and I get out alive. Uh, <laughs> but I thought because Jan and I'd never really lost—we'd split up, but we'd never lost contact—that making amends with her was going to be an easy deal. And so I, I, I sat down to make amends with her and. Uh, I did what we do. Uh, Now, the way I'm told to make amends is the first thing I need to tell you is that you're square with me. I can't come seeking forgiveness if I'm not offering it. And as my ex-wife so succinctly put it, Mike, you're the kind of guy who puts rocks and snowballs. So it was very important for me to put people off their guard, to let them know up front that I wasn't looking for anything here. So first thing you'll hear from me when I make amends to you is you're square with me or some version of that. And then the next thing you'll hear from me was I was wrong, not sorry, wrong. And I thought that was picky come to find out time after time I've had guys say you know Mike I've known you 25 years I've heard you say you were wrong or sorry a million or heard you say you were sorry a million times I've never heard you just flat out admit you were wrong about anything so those words had power and I said here's what I was wrong about and I told Jan what I was wrong about and then I said but I'm so self-centered I don't know how this affected you or what I did what else you know what the impact was or other things that I did that I don't even have any clue about. Tell me about that. And tell me, if you will, anything I can do to square the books between us. And I shut up and I listen and I don't argue and I don't defend myself. And so... uh, I did that with Jan and, and I said, well, you know, tell me, tell me about your side of this. And she says, well, Mike, she says, I can see you're a, a really good dad. Because this, at this time, I'm bringing Andrew into the barber shop. And she, she says, I can see the way Andrew is around you and I can tell he loves you a great deal and he's not afraid of you at all and you're obviously a good dad and that really pisses me off. She says, my girls deserve that from you. And you didn't give it to him, you ripped him off. And she went on to explain to me in detail how the cow ate the cabbage there. And so she and I got square, and I said, Well, obviously I've harmed the girls. Uh, What do you think I ought to do there? And by this time they're early teenagers. And she said, First, she didn't want me to do anything, then she said, Okay, I'll tell you what. If you want, Write them a letter, and if they want to have anything to do with you, it will be up to to them. And so uh, I will, uh, with permission, share that letter with you. (coughs) Dear Summer, I'm writing to do what I can to set right the harm that I did during the years that I was in relationship with your mom. I've chosen to type this rather than phone for two reasons. First, my handwriting's pretty hard to read, and second, because I want you to have something tangible that you can look at later when life may be treating you rough. It turns out I didn't really know then, but because I've worked with a lot of men since, that particularly with kids, They need something. that You can't just go vomit amends on them. Uh, They they need time to process this stuff. Think about it. Consider it. And let them come back to you in their time. Uh, To tell the truth, I'm tempted to just let things stay the way they are because your mom tells me that you have a few good memories of the time we spent together. Part of me says, why mess with that? The best answer I have is that I love you and I'm certain deep in my heart whether you know it yet or not, I've done you harm. I'm sure you're aware during those years we were together, I was an active alcoholic. They made me put this next part in bold italics. Let me be very clear that this in no way whatsoever relieves me of responsibility for my actions. I used alcohol and drugs because they were the only things I knew that could give me relief from the constant fear I felt. I was drawn to you and the family because I desperately wanted to love and be loved, but I was also scared to death at the prospect of being responsible. Emotionally, it felt like I had one foot on the gas and the other on the brake. I'm sure that it was hard for you to figure out what was real. Is the real Mike the one who wants to love me or the one who pushes me away? You weren't crazy. I was." You were a wonderful, lovable child, and you had every right to expect consistent love, emotional support, and parenting from me. What you got instead was fear, chaos, confusion, and abandonment. I want you to know that I didn't fail to give you those things because you were unlovable or undeserving, but because I was a sick and frightened man incapable of giving. If you feel emotionally ripped off, it's because you were. If you feel abandoned, you're not crazy. You were. I know at some deep emotional level it's hard not to feel that if you were really worthy and valuable that these things wouldn't have happened. Please believe me, this just isn't so. You are worthy and deserving of love, both then and now. I failed you. Summer, I hope you'll accept my heartfelt regret for these and the unlisted harms that I've done you. Should you ever want to talk about any of this, please give me a call if I can ever be of any help to you as a friend, I'd be honored. And then, P.S., I'm sending a similar letter to Eric and since my actions have also harmed her. And I didn't hear anything right away. Uh, And uh, she graduated from high school and I got invited to the graduation and I went. And that fall, after her graduation, word came from Arizona that uh, her biological father had uh, died out there. He died an alcoholic death. He hemorrhaged to death from esophageal varices on a couch in a flop house with a bottle of vodka out there. The way we go. And a few days later, I got a phone call from Summer, and she says, Mike, I says you remember that letter you wrote me? I said, sure I do. She says, you know, I was always hoping I'd get that letter from my dad. But since he'll never be able to send it, I think God had you send it for him. I get to be part of the chain of healing here. See, I go out... I'm part of God's recycling plan. I go out and I, I, I'm not a sociopath or a psychopath. I've always lived a life based on good intentions. I never wanted to... Yeah, do you want to terrorize children? Of course not. But I don't see that. I just see what I want. And so what happens is that in the process of cleaning up my garbage, it gets turned into something that can be useful and helpful to others. And so God reco- recycles my garbage, provided I will take it and put it in His hands couple years later, I got to go to uh, her wedding. And uh, I'll uh, let her tell you how that was. Michael, thank you so much for sharing my day with me. It seems like just yesterday you were chasing us around, bopping us with those foam bats. Those were such great times. I'm glad you're here to see me all grown up. The day wouldn't have been the same without you. Hope your holidays are wonderful. Please continue to keep in touch. Love and kisses, Summer. Uh, you know, I uh, God's plan, God's world is better than anything that I've ever had in mind for myself. I was the guy that used to. Look in the mirror at the bar and pound on the bar and go, it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair. And, you know, I'm here to tell you this afternoon from the bottom of my heart, thank God it's not fair. Thank you.